So Malachi chapter 2. So I do intend to preach uh, all of Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, but I only read the second half of the passage for a reason. Uh, So I typically like to walk through a passage kind of in the order that it appears in the text. Uh, So like today we're looking at all of verses 1 through 16. So I will usually start at verse 1 and then gradually work my way to verse 16. Uh, And like all of you know, uh, Bible passages typically lend themselves to be uh, interpreted and explained in this way. But with this large chunk that we're looking at this morning, I didn't find that to be the case. Now, if you've done a decent amount of, of watching movies, then you've probably seen a movie that comes on and, and it begins with a, a kind of foundational scene uh, where it shows you the present day and you see the present reality that's going on in the characters' lives. And it does all of this, it shows you the current setting only to then flash back in time and have the entire movie be the unfolding of what led up to the first scene that you just saw. You know, you have the first scene that kind of grabs your attention and then the screen pops up and it's this black screen with white letters and it says something like three years earlier or or two years prior or something along those lines. Well, directors do this because they feel as though you'd be helped to grasp the storyline or to grasp the plot of the movie by seeing and making note of what's taking place in the present, but then going back to analyze what was the cause of these present circumstances. And in looking at Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, I found that verses 10 through 16 show us the circumstance that Malachi is writing into. There we see the behaviors of God's people, and then we look back at verses 1 through 9, which, which focus more on the priest, and we're given insight into how the people of God got to the place they're at when Malachi is writing. And so I'm going to preach it in that order. We're first going to look at verses 10 through 16, and then we'll take a step back and kind of flash back to look at verses 1 through 9. Amen. All right, let's look at verses 10 through 16. In this section, we're going to see three examples of ungodly conduct that must remain uncommon and uncomfortable. Three examples of ungodly conduct that must remain uncommon and uncomfortable. The first example being infidelity to your people. Infidelity to your people. So in verse 10, we see Malachi pose three questions to the people. The first two questions are kind of redundant for the sake of emphasis. And then the third question is is one that that shows his reason for asking the first two. He says, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? So it seems here that Malachi is trying to to resolve and sort through some form of, of disunity amongst the people of God. He says they're acting treacherously against one another. And now this phrase, to act treacherously, uh, it carries with it the Hebrew concept of someone breaking faith. So when Malachi says that they're acting treacherously against one another, he's implying that as the people of God who are united by their shared faith in God, their division that they have amongst themselves is damaging their very faith because of their disunity. And this is probably why he, at the end of this question, he says that their treacherous acts profane the covenant of their ancestors. Because it was a promise, Right? It was a promise that God had made with his people, and he intended for it to be a single promise between him and a singular, unified group of people. In Romans 15, verses 5 through 6, Paul asked God to grant endurance and encouragement so that the people could live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. So the according to Christ Jesus and the so that we may glorify those phrases tell us that we as New Testament Christians, we, we, the, the glory we give our Savior and his gospel, it is directly impacted 
by the unity and harmony we have amongst ourselves. The glory we give to our God, the God whom we claim to love, is impacted by whether or not we're unified in our love for one another. And now you'll notice that each of the examples I point out in this section, uh, all of the, the, the examples of conduct that should remain uncommon and uncomfortable, I purposely label them as some form of infidelity. Now this one is infidelity to your people, and the next two are going to be infidelity to your God and infidelity to your spouse. Now the thing is, this term infidelity, it may seem a little heavy for this first example. You know, when we talk about our relationship with God or our relationship with a spouse, it doesn't make us uncomfortable to use such a heavy term like infidelity. But friends, I want you to know that in the same way you should feel like an infidel when you cheat on your spouse or practice idolatry against God, you should also feel like an infidel whom, when you don't protect the unity with brothers and sisters who are given to you by God. I think Malachi is intentional when he asked them if they have one father. See, when we're saved into renewed relationship with God and with one another, we're not just a new creation with new friends. The Bible tells us that we're a new creation with new family members. And we should protect this familiar unity by all means necessary. Friends, in Christ, we truly are siblings in the realest sense of the word. We're siblings in Christ. And we, like Israel, profane our covenant with God when we allow this unity to take root among us. So infidelity to your people is a kind of conduct that must remain uncommon and uncomfortable. Infidelity to your people is a conduct that must remain uncommon and uncomfortable. Moving on to the second example of conduct that should remain uncommon and uncomfortable. Infidelity to your God. Infidelity to your God. In verses 11 through 13, uh, Malachi kind of takes the focus off of Israel's offenses to one another, and he points out their offenses toward God. He says that they've done a detestable act, and the sanctuary which he loves has been profaned. And now if you look at the end of verse 11, you'll see that the cause of all of this seems to be connected to Israel intermarrying with foreigners. Now some people who do really bad theology, they look at this and say, oh, well, this is, this, this is proof that, that God's people should never get married across ethnic or societal lines. Uh, that's not the case. Uh, we see that in, in examples like that of, of, of Ruth and Boaz when, when God happily has someone who's a foreigner intermarry into his people. Uh, so the reason this marriage to foreigners, the reason this kind of marriage is a problem is because it wasn't foreigners who were coming to God's people when they married. It was God's people going to foreigners and as a byproduct going to their foreign gods. It even gives explicit implication to this when it calls those who are marrying daughter, when it, when it says that they're daughters of a foreign god. My wife and I have a golden doodle who's about two years old. It's a smart dog, sometimes too smart for his own good. And as you all know, one of the primary ways dogs exercise discernment is by using their nose, right? So if you take away a dog's capability to smell, it throws them off. They're forced to rely on sight and sound and whatever other senses they can muster up to, to help them uh, be guided throughout life if they don't have a nose. Well, one day I had come back from, from deer hunting and, and our dog was just being kind of weird. It's as if he'd forgotten who I was and he, he was acting all nervous around me. You know, I'd call him and he'd take a few steps close and then uh, 
he acted like he, he'd get close, but he wouldn't come all the way and kind of act like he didn't know me. And then it dawned on me. When I went hunting, I sprayed on scent control. And although Ridge was looking at me and hearing me speak, because I didn't smell like myself, he didn't want anything to do with me. Because my scent or my aroma was off, our relationship was hindered. Because I didn't have the necessary aroma of safety and familiarity, my own dog didn't feel comfortable with me. Here you've got the Israelites. They're amongst these foreign people. And it's almost as if God's people needed to realize that though these foreigners, who were probably physically attractive, they, so they looked okay, and they were probably charismatic, you know, able to make you feel good with their words, so they probably sounded okay, and they probably, by many standards, appeared to be okay or even good, as if not only was there nothing uh, harmful or dangerous to worry about, but there might actually be some gain in intermarrying with them. It's almost as if the Israelites needed to realize that though all of these appearances of goodness were there, these people lacked the necessary aroma of unwavering devotion to God. God's word tells us in many other places that marriage, in a marriage, two become one. And if you're becoming one with someone who isn't evidently devoted to the worship of the one true God, but instead is devoted to the worship of foreign gods, then you're outside of God's intent for the marriages of his people. And the worst part is that before long, you might also lack the necessary aroma of unwavering devotion to God. It's true that bad company can corrupt good morals. And so marrying a spouse, even when you know that they worship false gods, could also corrupt your worship of the true God. And like me with Ridge, God may look at you as if you're not even slightly familiar to him. Look at the consequence he issues those who marry foreign idol worshipers. Verse 12, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, meaning marry foreigners with false gods whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. When the text says that these people will be cut off from the tents of Jacob, it's showing us that those who married idol worshipers and began worshiping their false gods, they were severed from the people of the one true God. And it seems like they might have tried to do both. They wanted to, to worship the false gods and marry the idol worshipers, but apparently they also kept trying to worship the God who they knew was true. The end of verse 12 implies that they continued presenting offerings to the true God. Well, this didn't work because God is worthy of all praise, and he would not tolerate it when he's offered a form of worship that he has to share with a foreign false god. God demands our pure, full worship, and he doesn't operate on this kind of credit-debit system where we can, can bank enough worship of him and bank enough sacrifices unto him to buy ourselves permission to go and then also worship false gods and idols. The text shows us that even if we go to God with an obligatory sacrifice, even if we go to him being willing to offer some form of sacrifice out of duty, if we're also worshiping false gods, we're still considered an infidel in our relationship with him. He wants our full, pure worship. So are there any false gods? that you may need to turn away from in order to offer God this exclusive, full, and pure worship that he's worthy of receiving? Is there any company you're keeping? 
that may be tempting you toward idol worship. Infidelity to God. In our day, it doesn't necessarily look like the worship of a physical statue, but anytime we allow something to take the focus of our lives off of God, we're being unfaithful to worship him like we were created to. It's an offense to God. It's an offense to God, and it's a form of conduct that should remain uncommon and uncomfortable for God's people. He desires our full, pure worship, and he doesn't want to share it with any other false god or idol. The final example of this kind of conduct that should remain uncommon and uncomfortable is the infidelity to a spouse. Infidelity to a spouse. In verse 14, Malachi is talking about how God's people are acting confused about why God won't accept their sacrifices. And we've seen that a couple of reasons are because of them being unfaithful to one another and being unfaithful to him. But here we also see that they're unfaithful to their spouses. And we see that phrase again, act treacherously. Malachi says, even though God has been a witness between them and the wives of their youth, they still act treacherously against her. He reminds them that the wife of their youth was their partner and wife by covenant, and that God had made them one and given them a portion of spirit, and that the one is seeking godly offspring. Now, the text gets a bit vague and, and somewhat hard to interpret there. Uh, there's much debate amongst scholars about what it means when the text says a husband and wife is given a portion of spirit. And there's also much debate about who the one is referring to in verse 16. Some believe that a portion, to have a portion of spirit means to have God's spirit at work, helping spouses to be unified in their marriages. Then others believe that it could mean spouses are unified and literally having a single spirit or ethos or vibe about themselves in their marriage. So they're, they're kind of like-minded in a sense. And then others think it could mean that though husbands are act acting treacherously against their wives, the spirit of their marital covenant is still there and it still needs to be protected. And then in dealing with that term, the one, some believe it could be a reference to God. Others believe it could be a reference to the married couple. And some would say it may even be a reference back to Adam or Abraham since they're seen as, as pivotal beginnings to God's offspring. But I don't want us to get bogged down in thinking about the difficulty of interpreting verse 15. Because I think that no matter which interpretations are accurate, the point that God communicates through Malachi, it remains the same and is made clear with what's said at the end of verse 15. God's people should watch themselves carefully and they should never act treacherously against the spouse that he gives them. It's the point that he's making. God's people should be faithful to their spouses. And then verse 16, we get there and there's some more difficulty that that this verse is kind of noted for. If you're looking at the CSB translation like I am, you'll see that this verse reads, if he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. And then it repeats that same command from, from verse 15, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. Well, some other translations kind of render this verse differently, and they, they, they read more like this. For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and covering one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to yourselves and do not be faithless. Now, in spite of the difficulty that comes with verses 15 through 16, we see God's point. God does hate divorce. He hates divorce. He wants spouses to avoid acting treacherously or breaking faith with one another. 
and he intends for the marital union to be fought for by any means necessary. But hear me out. I do believe that the Bible teaches in some terrible scenarios there may be biblical grounds for divorce. That's a whole other sermon and a whole other conversation. But what I'm not saying here is that you should never, even in a million years of physical abuse, pursue divorce. What I am saying is that according to scripture, before you ever get to that millionth year and end a marriage, God desires for spouses to exhaust all possibilities for reconciliation and to pursue grace and love that would keep a marriage together. So the first desire of God's is that marriages remain intact because it brings him glory. And so that's a good question to think through, right? Like, like why is the marital union so important to God? Why was it so important for Malachi to remind the Israelites of this? And why is it so important for us to consider the importance of marital unity today? I think verses 15 through 16 give us insight into why. First, because God does make husbands and wives one with one another, and he desires for no man to separate what he puts together. But secondly, marital unity, it should be protected for visibility's sake. Verse 16 mentions that divorce covers a garment with injustice. Now, some believe that this garment is, is kind of symbolic. It's, it's like a, a representation of, of the wife that a husband wears and, 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 and is supposed to adorn with his life. So when a man receives a wife, he should put her on like a garment so he can, can walk around and show her off. Some, some think that there's symbolic representation there. But what I want to draw our attention to is the fact that a garment is typically understood to be a visible exterior piece of clothing that you wear. And when you stain it with something, especially something as extreme as injustice, like the text says, is there for the whole world to see. So God may be communicating that divorce should be avoided, that marital unity should be protected, and infidelity to a spouse should remain uncommon and uncomfortable because the world needs to look at God's people and see marriages that are intact, marriages that are centered on love, and marriages that are thriving for the Lord's glory. Why? Because the marriages represent something bigger than both people who are in it. Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that marriages exist as a mysterious depiction of the love between Christ and the church. So faithfulness and unity should be protected within marriages because marriage points to something bigger than both people who are in it. Even your marriage isn't about you. It's first about God. It exists for his glory. And therefore, we should protect the unity that exists there. But now I don't only want to talk to the married people, because I think there's something for singles here, too. See, my encouragement to singles is for you to not feel as though you need to be married in order to live out the values that marriage displays. See, in your singleness, you get to observe the same glory of God that the world sees when God's people have marriages that are intact. So that's my encouragement. Do just that. See God's glory in the marriages around you. See it in the marriages, then rejoice at seeing the example of Christ and the church, and then be compelled to love in sacrificial ways, whether you have a spouse or not. We know that marriage is a God-centered, institutionalized, it's a a God-crafted kind of relationship for a specific kind of sacrificial love. But while marriage gives the opportunity for this specific kind of sacrificial love, singleness doesn't exclude God's people from opportunities to act in sacrificial love. See, we shouldn't see marriage as something to be idolized or as the ultimate test for whether or not we can love sacrificially. We should see the Christian life 
as the ultimate test for whether or not we can love sacrificially. So while glorifying God in marriage is something that you may not be able to do right now, rejoicing at the fact that God does receive glory from marriages is something you can begin doing right now. Your Savior is glorified when husbands and wives love one another like God has called them to. His glory is depicted to the world. And it's not only something that the world responds to, but it's something that all of us, single, married, whoever we are, we get to see and respond to as well. So if you're single, how do you respond to this, this in the text about marriage? Like, what, what, what application is there for you here? Well, you can respond by encouraging your married brothers and sisters, encouraging them to, to press on in their fidelity to one another. Go and tell them, like, hey, I'm encouraged by y'all's marriage because you're doing a great job at leading me to see and rejoice in my Savior's glory and also to, to see and rejoice in the sacrificial love that he has for me because I'm a part of the church that your marriage and, 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 and your marital relationship displays his love for. So I'm rejoicing with y'all because your marriage is doing something and proclaiming the glory of our Savior. Marriage within the church it's something that we can all rejoice in. It's not exclusive to the married people. So infidelity to a spouse is a conduct that must remain uncommon and uncomfortable for God's people. But you don't have to be married to help make sure that this is the case. Infidelity to a spouse must remain uncommon and uncomfortable. Infidelity to your God must remain uncommon and uncomfortable. And infidelity to your people must remain uncommon and uncomfortable. Now, we've seen the, the, uh, these behaviors, and remember, if this is a movie, uh, the director knows that we need to kind of flash back and see what led to all of this. So look back at verse 13 with me. How did God's people get to this place of having bad examples of conduct? In verse 13, God's people are being called out for how they live with ungodly conduct, but still expect God to receive their offerings. It says, this is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. As I studied this passage, I started to think that we, what we see in, in verse 13 was probably a learned behavior. The reason I say this is because the rebuke for poor sacrifices, poor sacrifices and poor offerings, the rebuke for that is first given to the priest. God gives rebuke specifically to the priests in this first section that we're about to flash back to. And now because of the role that the priests would have played amongst God's people, I'm willing to bet that the poor example of the priest was imitated by the people and it then led to a culture, a, a culture of poor offerings being given to God. So in these first verses, uh, verses 1 through 9, we're looking at the ungodly culture that must remain uncommon and uncomfortable. We've, we've seen the ungodly conduct, now we're looking at the ungodly culture that must remain uncommon and uncomfortable. Let me quickly read verses 1 through 9, and then we'll walk through it and make a few more observations. So verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2 in Malachi. Therefore, this decree is for you, priest. If you don't listen, and if you don't take it to heart to honor my name, says the Lord of armies, I will send a curse among you, and I will curse your blessings. In fact, I have already began to curse them because you are not taking it to heart. Look, I am going to rebuke your descendants, and I will spread animal waste over your faces, the waste from your, from your festival sacrifices, and you will be taken away with it. 
Then you will know that I sent you this decree so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of armies. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave these to him. It called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity and turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should desire instruction from his mouth, because he is the messenger of the Lord of armies. You, on the other hand, have turned from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of armies. So I, in turn, have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in your instruction. Now, we can kind of see just from reading that, that the priests have, been, have not been honoring the Lord with their service. In verse 2, he tells them that he's already begun to curse the blessings they offer because of the way they've been behaving. And now again, the people of God would have observed the priest and then imitated them in the way they approached God in worship. So the priest would have been influencing culture. And now we all know that culture impacts everything. It's a saying that, that's common in, in, in the world of business and just in general. Culture influences everything. The impact of culture is the very reason that you have certain expectations when you go to Chick-fil-A. You know, you go and, and you go through the line and you place your order, and then when you're done, you say thank you, and how dare them say anything other than my pleasure. Like if, if, an empl if a Chick-fil-A employee tells you you're welcome, you're insulted by their politeness. So how could you tell me I'm welcome? Like, okay, great, I'm welcome, but is it your pleasure to serve me? So Chick-fil-A culture leads you to show up with certain expectations. And culture here amongst the people of God that's being set by the priest is leading God's people to offer subpar sacrifices to him. Look at the first reprimand the priests get in verse 2. If you don't listen and if you don't take it to heart to honor my name, says the Lord of armies, I will send a curse among you and I will curse your blessings. In fact, I have already begun to curse them because you are not taking it to heart. So these priests, by their example, are setting a culture of what we can call closed ears and cold hearts. So closed ears and cold hearts are of an ungodly culture that must remain uncommon and uncomfortable. Notice that the proper response to, to this rebuke of the priests will require two things from them, both listening and taking it to heart, as the text says. So we can glean from this that doing just one of them isn't enough. God doesn't want us to just hear from him without heartfelt consideration of the weight of what it means to live for. And he doesn't want us to merely be sincere in our approach to him without looking to and obeying his word. It's an unfortunate reality, but I think many of us Western Christians are really good at doing one of these while neglecting the other. There are some of us who are adamant about reading God's word. We want to understand his truth. We want to consider what he's spoken. But we forget to take what we hear to heart. We fail to take it beyond our ears and into our hearts in a way that will actually nourish our souls and cause change within our lives. And then there are others of us who are adamant about revering God and, and seriously considering his bigness and his glory. But our reverence isn't as deep as it could be 
because we don't seek his word to hear from him and learn more about his glory. We take to heart the fact that God is God, but we fail to give an ear to this God whom we claim to revere and worship so much. Both of these are terrible pitfalls that we should avoid. God demanded that the priests both listen and resolve in their hearts to honor him. And he demands the same thing from all of us today. So friends, my question in light of this, are you seeking to do both for the sake of honoring God's name? Are your ears open? Is your heart resolved to seriously consider God and his decrees? The priest had neglected the task of listening and they neglected the task of taking it to heart. And so they were setting a culture of closed ears and cold hearts. But this isn't the only damage that they do to the culture. They also instilled partial truth and pitiful living. So now let's talk about how partial truth and pitiful living are of an ungodly culture that must remain uncommon and uncomfortable. Look down at verses 8 through 9 with me. Verses 8 through 9. You, on the other hand, have turned from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of armies. So I, in turn, have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in your instruction. So God has just finished talking about Levi, and, and, and we'll go back and look at that middle part in a second. Uh, but he's just finished talking about how the Levites, as the original priest, did a lot of good for God's people. But he says, on the other hand, you, priest of Malachi's day, have turned from the way. You violated the covenant, and you've caused many to stumble with your instruction. And at the end of verse 9, he points out that the instruction they've been giving was partial instruction. So what does it mean for a priest to give partial instruction, and why is that such a big deal? Well, if we go back and, and kind of read through the earlier books of the Bible, we see that uh, the Levitical tribe of Israel, they've been set apart for some special and, and, and specific services regarding God's temple and the worship of God at the temple by his people. So for the, uh, the, the, so for the Levitical family line, all of their lives revolved around leading and instructing the people in their worship of the Lord. And for the most part, the tribe of Levi had done a good job at this. In Exodus chapter 32, we see them be set apart for this work because they're being faithful in it before they're even formally acknowledged or recognized for it. But the Levites were human. And like the rest of us, they saw times when their faithfulness wavered. That's what's happening here in Malachi's day. And he rebukes them for not upholding the Levitical faithfulness of the past. Now, I encourage y'all to kind of go back and, and read the uh, read all of verses 3 through 7 to see how, just, like in specifics, how the Levites' lives uh, please the Lord. But in verse 3, what we see, what I, what I want to focus on is that the Lord tells the priests of Malachi's day that he's going to spread the animal waste of their sacrifices over their faces, and they'll be taken away with it. Now, the, the gross, kind of the, the gross nature of this rebuke, I think it helps us to see how strongly God felt he needed to discipline the priests for their lack of faithfulness. They had been allowing the people to obey only certain parts of the law, and instead of having the people bring their best, the priests were accepting these lame and blind sacrifices and bringing them to God's altar for worship. 
then the Lord gives them this reminder that the worship they're offering is an indicator of what they should consider themselves. If you get comfortable with offering God messy sacrifices and messy worship, then he considers you a part of the messiness that needs to be carried away. The priest and their partial instruction had caused these people to live pitifully in disobedience to God, yet they still expected the Lord to receive their messy offerings and pitiful living with joy. And I think this should probably sound familiar to us in a couple of ways. If you've been a Christian long enough, it should first remind you of your own life. I mean, this is what we do, right? Just being straight up and kind of putting it all out there. This is what we do. We fail to obey God time and time again. The lives that we offer him as sacrifices are pretty pitiful offerings at times. And it should also sound familiar because we read about a group who lived this way in the New Testament. See, this is the last book of prophecy. The last book of prophecy before the New Testament begins. And so after this book that we're reading right now, there was a 400-year silence between the end of this book and the advent of Jesus. God didn't speak to his people for 400 years through a prophet. And the people never got it right. So we, read the, we get to the New Testament and, and we begin reading and we see that the Pharisees are all about holy living on the exterior. But they, like the priest, right here in Malachi's day, they failed to offer good sacrifices and truly worship the Lord in their hearts. So the culture didn't shift. And this is why Jesus needed to come. Malachi had prophesied. He, he, he tried to call the people back to faithfulness, but the ungodly culture and ungodly conduct remained amongst God's people. Then Jesus shows up. And he's a much more significant prophet than Malachi. He shows up and he demands a culture shift. See, he could give the demand instead of giving suggestions because he, unlike Malachi, was God himself. He could demand instead of suggesting because he would pay for the spiritual empowerment that his people needed to create godly culture and live with godly conduct. Jesus would not only demand, but he would also demonstrate. We're talking about a man who left the bliss of heaven in order to save all of us from hell. He came and put on human flesh, then lived the perfect life that these priests, the people of Israel, and all of us could never live in our own strength. And then he made up for all of the trashy sacrifices that we offer by, by going to the cross and, and dying to become the perfect sacrifice that exceeded even those of the Levites in their faithfulness. And finally, he rose from death and ascended into heaven, promising that we get to join him someday if we turn from our sins and trust in him as our Savior. To that, friends, we must say hallelujah, praise our God. But in the meantime, he's made all of us priests. See, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 tells us that we on this side of Christ are now a royal priesthood. And he's given us the charge to live with godly conduct and create godly culture. So I close with these questions. Are you actively standing against the conduct of infidelity to your people? Are you actively standing against the conduct of infidelity to God? Are you actively standing against the conduct of infidelity to spouses? Do you seek to foster a culture where ears are open and hearts are warm? Do you seek to foster a culture where God's instruction is full and your lives are holy?
you're God's people of this day. Live with godly conduct. Foster a godly culture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that though we fall short in many ways to glorify your name like we're called to, Christ makes up for our falling short. Father, we can't help but to identify with the priest and the people of Malachi's day. Our lives are sometimes pitiful sacrifices that we try to offer you. And so, Lord, we praise you so much because the, the life of Christ was a perfect sacrifice and it's exactly what we needed to be renewed in relationship with you. Lord, would you help us to rejoice in that today and then to live out what he's declared us to be on the cross? Would you help us to live with godly conduct? Would you help us to live in a way that fosters godly culture, which then fosters more godly conduct? All for your glory and our good, Lord, we pray that you would empower us toward this end. It's in the master's name of Christ we pray. Amen.